This is The Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. The show's about you, and we're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. Be sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and products we don't share or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. And if you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at AOC during our live programs here in LA, check out the toolbox at theartofcharm.com toolbox. That's where you'll get fundamentals like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating attraction, business networking, negotiation, relationships, etc. All that stuff we'd wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. And we've got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. Theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp for details on that or give us a call here in the office. Or you can even email me. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com and I do read everything. I'm looking forward to meeting all of you here at AOC. Today we're talking with my friend Sam Cook. Sam's a West Point grad. He served two tours in Iraq with the U.S. military. He's a really interesting dude. He's got a lot of tough lessons for himself, networking in the Army, and how networking process actually saved lives in Iraq. He spent a lot of time doing complex negotiations with local tribal leaders and enemy fighters. We're going to talk about negotiations, how to look for the win-win-win on all sides. It's always there. you got to find it. Deal-making, he who cares the least wins, giving yourself options, and of course, why you should always break bread, even in the digital networking age, to ensure that your relationships start off and remain strong. Really interesting networking episode, different angle, different take on this from Sam Cook. so enjoy. So you're an interesting guy. I mean, we met completely randomly. You live overseas now. You've had uh, some interesting stories that you kind of were going back and forth with me, and so I decided to do a show. I think it's interesting. You're a former U.S. Cavalry officer, which, by the way, wasn't sure that still existed. Um, it, it Obviously, you don't ride horses anymore, I would imagine. Uh, and you, you served two tours in Iraq. Now you're a marketer, so you've got a lot of inside knowledge on people that you got from the military that you now apply to business, which I think is interesting. So would you tell us a little bit, Sam, about who you are and your backstory so that we can decide whether or not you're credible enough to listen to for the next hour? Yeah, sure. Uh, Jordan, uh, great to be on here and chat to your, you and your audience. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably the oddest ex-Army officer um, out there because uh, most Army officers, when they leave the Army, at least later in their career, become uh, contractors or do something else in the security advice field because of the expertise they gain. Well, I decided after spending 13 years as an Army officer to leave the Army, and uh, it was a very odd time to leave because it was seven years away from retirement. But I, I just came to this nagging realization in my early 30s. I wasn't happy and passionate about spending the next uh, seven years working for the Army. Although I loved the first 13, it was just time to go. And I was having a hard time deciding what I wanted to do to leave the army. And I knew I wanted to be in business and entrepreneurship. And the first business I started while I was still in the army was a tour company. And I wasn't quite passionate about it. And then after, you know, I kind of wound down my responsibilities for that business, 
I looked back at what I was good at or what I spent my time doing. And anytime I got stressed in the business, I was always tinkering with the websites. I rebuilt the website three times for this tour company. And then I thought about it more. And I looked back at even when I was in the army in 2005 in Iraq, I actually spent my, I guess you'd call it free time from midnight to two in the morning working on a website for the third cavalry regiment, which I built just totally on my own initiative to help raise some money for our scholarship fund for children of, of soldiers that were killed over there during that tour. And, and then in 2007, before Facebook, and I was about to deploy to Iraq, I had my the spouse of one of my lieutenants build a website for us as uh, a way to keep the soldiers in touch while we're in Iraq. So roundabout story is I started marketing or, or getting into the online digital content publishing because I realized that when I was bored or stressed or something like that, I always went to this place where I was producing videos or websites or doing some information-based uh, stuff. So I thought, well, you know what, that's probably what I should get out and, and do uh, because that was what I realized was my passion in life. So it was a great way for me to segue out of the Army as a digital publisher. I'm now doing publishing for my own properties and, and publishing authors who have great ideas. And uh, it really just has been a, an amazing journey to leave one profession and enter entrepreneurship in a totally different, random way. I, you know, what I want to focus on for this episode is, you know, you networked a lot as an Army officer, and that actually translated to saving lives. I, I talked to a lot of military guys, and it's the special forces and intelligence guys are like, oh my gosh, art of charm, our whole unit listens, we listen even when we're flying somewhere, and everyone's trading the latest one, because I guess a lot of times... They don't have internet really good out, out in Afghanistan, surprise, surprise, or Iraq, or Djibouti, so they're passing flash drives around or like figuring out how to Bluetooth it to other people's phones, which I'm very flattered by. Uh, and these guys are listening and they're saying, this is really good stuff, and then I'll talk to these military guys that aren't doing something special forces-wise or intelligence-wise, and they're like, yeah, I don't need to network, or I, this isn't an important skill in my industry, and a lot of the officers that we've had come through out of charm disagree very strongly, but you actually use networking skills to save lives in Iraq. You spent a lot of time as a commander working on complex negotiations with tribal elders and enemy fighters you know, to try to build alliances and find a political solution to insurgencies. And that's really fascinating because basically you're using AOC skills, uh, whether you knew it or not, to stop people from shooting each other and blowing each other up and create alliances that would solve a problem like an insurgency, which it's great to think that these skills could be used for the ultimate high purpose, which is building a better world, not just making yourself more money, et cetera. Yeah, Jordan, I, first of all, I wish I would have had this podcast when I was preparing for my tours in Iraq, because I don't even think podcasting really had taken off back in, in 2005 and 2007 and eight when I deployed. No. A lot of the same things that you've studied in developing Art of Charm, I was studying back then. I'd gotten a hold of some books on body language. I'd read some books on influence, the classic works uh, that I'm sure you teach out of, The Six Principles of Influence. Caldini. Caldini. Yeah, Caldini, yeah. Was, it, was a huge one. I even read, um, I even read some of the books on anthropology and, and just the way we've evolved socially as humans. And I really dove deep into that field because I think I realized when I was going back to Iraq, I had my lieutenants read this material. I was a company commander, which meant I was in charge of 140 guys. And in my first tour in Iraq, I went over there and I was a staff officer 
And I was in charge at the beginning of my tour for making plans for my our squadron commander. And it was a horrible position for me because I'm not uh, naturally a very organized, methodical person. And a good friend of mine, Douglas Hoyt, who you know is just one of my heroes in life, just one of the best army officers I've ever met and worked with, he was over there in Iraq and he was about to move to another area. And he was doing this job called the tribal engagement officer. And it was this brand new position that we'd made up in Iraq because it was basically in every battalion, we had an area of operations and I had an area of operations or my battalion had an area of operations uh, south of Baghdad with all of the former Saddam Hussein loyalists. And basically this job that they wanted me to do was to go out and just network with the tribal leadership and to also hand out contracts, which we would use to uh, curry favor with the local population by putting in a well or fixing their electricity in order to fight the insurgency with soft power. And I remember during that time that it was a, it was a really amazing experience to see while the other commanders were out there were fighting and doing the hard work of the patrols and the raids and things like that and working against the guys who were planting bombs that my job was to go out and and just talk to people all day. And so my first tour, I really spent a lot of time doing that for about three months. And then uh, in the middle of the deployment, I got moved up to Talifar in northern Iraq, where I served as a regimental adjutant for Colonel H.R. McMaster, who's now a three-star general. And what I learned that first tour, both doing it myself, but also watching a colonel do it on the high-stakes level, uh, was the power of political engagement to come to a solution beyond fighting. And really, it, it makes a lot of sense. I studied history at West Point and they had a very good history department. And, and we were always drilled in our head that war is just politics by other means. And I used to tell my soldiers that war is just a big uh, political campaign with guns. And we were just rolling around uh, making a big argument when people didn't believe in you, you could kind of ratchet it up to the next level. So if you can imagine the, the next presidential campaign coming up, Hillary and whoever else she's going to run against, you know, bringing out a small militia when they, when they disagree after a debate, that's kind of how I visualized Iraq. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. So, so how did you start, how do you start approaching these situations? Because you're coming to parties that I would imagine have an already inherent distrust, which is unusual, although it does happen in business as well. You know, you get these takeovers or deals where people don't want to be there, or at least one side doesn't want to be there. Is that the case? Is that what you were dealing with? Well, yeah, the thing about the Middle East and especially Iraq was the tribal dynamics had been around for four or 5,000 years since the beginning biblical times and, and before that. And that was just the way that things were over there. And, and you really walked into this Hatfield and McCoy type environment where families had been around forever on the same pieces of land or, you know, and really had some deep roots. And it was actually pretty interesting because Americans at that point we're kind of a, a neutral third party in some ways uh, dealing with some of the tribal disputes. But ultimately, and I, and I didn't blame them, I used to tell my soldiers, look, if someone came and invaded the United States, I'd be out there fighting them too. Imagine if you know we're all in Texas where we were stationed and the Chinese army came over here. We would all be fighting. And if you didn't, I'd be out there shooting you for not fighting because yeah. I'm you know, former military. So if you put yourself in the shoes of the people that you're working against, it really helps to just have a little bit of empathy for their position and and also some respect. Now, of course, they didn't wear a uniform and adhere to traditional rules of land warfare, but 
you can't really blame them because they tried that when we invaded and in three weeks their entire army collapsed and was destroyed. So they were just doing what the United States did during the Revolutionary War, which is guerrilla warfare. Uh, so it was really interesting to just see when you got into a situation like that, that, you know, first of all, put yourself in the other person's shoes and, and try and, you know, walk a few steps in, in their shoes and understand their perspective. And then at that point, when they see that you're coming from that point, uh, then you have a starting point for developing some kind of uh, rapport and, and to build relationships. But um, it was very interesting. And, and there were some special dynamics to to doing it over there because you didn't understand the language. You actually had to become much more aware of body language and the dynamic of the room than when you do understand the language. And the other really cool thing about speaking through an interpreter is you have about two to four times more time to observe their reaction while your message is being delivered, while they're delivering their message and you don't know a word of what they're saying, mm -hmm. but try and read their body language and guess what they just said. So some fascinating insights that you gained from those long meetings that you're in. Excellent, yeah, of course. So how do you take away the personal feeling that you have where these guys are like, yeah, we're supposed to be blowing up people who are trying to help us because we're angry. You know, I mean, how do you separate the emotional side? Because I mean, you know people that are dying, you know them well, and that's your side. How do you remove your emotions from these negotiations and stuff like that? Because I feel like that's probably part of the problem is people not doing that, of course, and, and these people are also maybe not totally rational. Yeah, that, the hardest part about negotiations in, in combat, and, and this is true in every area of life, when you, in your relationship and in business, uh, we tend to make a lot of decisions that are very emotional uh, rather than um, based on a rational evaluation of, of your negotiating position. But in, in warfare, obviously, it's amped up a bit higher. And I was actually observing Colonel McMaster, who'd lost soldiers. You know, we lost 43 soldiers in that tour in Iraq in our regiment and watching him deal with some of these shakes. And there were times where he did get quite emotional uh, and didn't take emotion out of it. And I was the same way when I was negotiating with people there's a time for emotion and there's a time to considerately uh, purposefully apply emotion. But if you always are emotional about things, then it never has an impact. So one of the things that I tried to do was keep a very even keel in a lot of the negotiations that we had. But when someone really crossed me and I knew that I was able to follow through on the anger that I was displaying, if they didn't back down, then that was the time to use it. So I wouldn't say you take emotions out of it. Uh, you know, we are human, but you need to understand the implications of emotions before you use them. And I think that's probably the hardest part about and uh, relationships and, and obviously uh, in warfare is being able to understand, okay, I'm having an emotional reaction right now. Absorb that. Don't suppress it, but actually let it, let it go through you and say, okay, well, how can I use this? Do I need to separate myself from this situation for a little while and then go in with a clear head or is now the time to, to deal with this? And that was, I think, one of the biggest lessons I learned from uh, watching Colonel McMaster work and then also do it myself was just getting more aware of your mode. Look, war is an emotional thing. And when you lose friends and when you're dealing with fear of losing your soldiers or fear of, of your own safety, it's pretty hard to not actually deal with those emotions. You have to deal with them. But being self-aware of those emotions and being okay with the fact that you have them, I think is the first step 
to being able to effectively use them. Perfect. Back to the show. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wise experience in that because, in fact, it leads to another point, which is that in deal-making, he who cares the least wins. That's something that you brought up as well during the pre-interview, and I thought that was fascinating. I mean, how do we stop caring so much when we're talking about a life-and-death situation? Or just, you know, the guys who are thinking, if I don't get this deal, my business is sunk. How do we start to not care? I mean, you have to give yourself options. But that can be really tough when you don't have any, or at least when it seems like you just don't have any. Yeah, well, it, the first part about, and, and that saying I said, he who cares the least wins, is knowing that if your side of the negotiation doesn't go through, you have options. So the, the key part of that is giving yourself options or putting yourself in a situation where you have options. So I'll give a, a quick example of that. Colonel McMaster, I, I watched him during the Battle of Talafar in Iraq, and the first tour really hammer this part home. And he would bring some of the tribal sheikhs in who were in charge of groups that had many people in their, in their tribe that were fighting us, you know, and he would bring them in. I was in charge of setting up the room. So we would, everything that we did was, was designed to create an emotional breaking point for the person we were negotiating with. I remember I set up a room and we sat this sheikh down and I purposefully, I gave him a small chair and he was sitting at this table. My colonel was towering over him, even though he wasn't that tall his chair and the way the table was set up, he was towering over him. And then in the background behind him, we put a bunch of combat, like professionally photographed photos of us during the recent fighting where he was seeing heroic shots of Americans. So if he didn't look the colonel in the eye, he was looking behind him and seeing, you know, these heroic images of Americans. And it just had this subtle uh, psychological effect on people. And then we put bodyguards in the room with him too, with guns, just, you know, to make sure he didn't do anything stupid, but also to, to send this message that, if this doesn't go the way we want it to go and you go back out there and you keep fighting, there's going to be consequences. And when you have 5,000 soldiers, over a hundred tanks, helicopters with hellfire missiles and, you know, Rangers and Delta force coming in whenever you want them, you have options. So you don't care if he doesn't, you know, accept the offer that you make. And that was, that's kind of what I mean by he who cares the least wins, but in, you know, same thing in business, you have to be able to go into negotiation and walk away and be okay. And it's not like you're not afraid and it's not like there's going to be consequences if someone doesn't accept your deal. But I think what I always say in business and the perspective I have is, well, no one's going to die over this. I mean, there's no one shooting at you. There's no one dying. So it's just money. And if you kind of have that outlook, life really isn't that bad. You're always going to see someone out there who's got it worse. Uh, even when I was in Iraq, I mean, there were areas that were a lot worse than the areas I was in. I think you just have to put things in perspective. And at the end of the day, just it's like when you really want something, you can sabotage yourself. So you just have to learn how to become a little bit detached from the outcome. And usually your negotiations go much better. Perfect. Yeah, I can definitely see how knowing that you have a lot of options and a lot of resources would help in this situation. I think so the trick would then become for us to then try to figure out, even if we're kind of just rationalizing, which resources and which recourses we do have, even if those options aren't that great at first. So thinking, all right, I need to go in and negotiate a raise, right? So a lot of people are afraid to ask for a raise because they're thinking, what if they don't give me the raise? And on top of that, what if I get fired? 
then I won't be able to feed my family and da 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 da. So then they just never go in there. Or if they do go in there to negotiate a raise, they're like, can I have $5 more per hour? And they're like, no. And they're like, okay, bye. Don't fire me. And they just, you know, scurry away. But if you go in there thinking, you know, I really need a raise. I deserve a raise. Worst case scenario, they quote unquote fire me for asking for a raise, which I believe is difficult to do anyway. I have options. I've been here for years. I have a lot of experience. You know, this might be the impetus. I need to start my own gig. I've got money saved up or I, you know, my wife has income. We can be fine on that for a while until I find another job. You can always find recourse and resource. And then of course you go in there to ask for a raise without being afraid that you're going to get canned. And they go, well, we can't give you 10K more a year, but how's five? And you walk out stoked that you bothered to do it. And I see this happen in business a lot with any little deal, especially deals that AOC does all the time, because we kind of walk in feeling like, all right, we're the hot chick. These guys want to work for us. They want us to be their client. We're going to negotiate the price. And when people go, no, we don't negotiate our prices, we go, all right, cool. Well, we'll come back in a few months. We haven't found anybody else. And maybe we'll hire you then. And you'd be very surprised at how often they come back and go, well, if we do this this way and we do this that way, we can meet your price. I mean, it happens almost every single time. And it's not nickel and diming, but it's it's certainly when you're looking for the win-win, like you'd mentioned before, and you're coming in with options, it's a really potent combination for really good leverage when you're when you're doing any kind of deal, when you're negotiating, when you're networking, when you're creating relationships with anyone, really. Well, Jordan, that's exactly right. The power of networking is creating options so that you always have something when you go into negotiation that you can fall back on. And you know, if you have a job but you have a bunch of friends in a different industry, you almost want to dare them to fire you because then it's going to just move you to that thing that you know you need to be doing. And I think that's really the power of a mindset shift in life regarding negotiations is if you don't ever get outside of your comfort zone and you don't nurture relationships, then you're always going to be losing in negotiations because you have no other options and you don't want to go home to your wife and tell her that you got fired for you know, going into your boss on the wrong foot. But if, you know, when I was trying to get out of the army and knew that I, I wanted to get out, it, everyone thought I was crazy because I was giving up a mid six figure year salary and a retirement in seven years where I could have had, you know, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 inflation adjusted for the rest of my life with free healthcare. That was crazy to do, but I knew that money isn't everything. I'm not happy unless I'm out running my own thing and, and pursuing something I'm passionate about and that I would pay to do. I think that's the secret to life is do something you would pay to do. And then I just started working like crazy to develop options for myself. And I didn't go approach my bosses about leaving the army until I knew that when I left, I would have something to go do. And and yeah, it wasn't a, a hugely profitable business at that point, or actually it wasn't profitable, but I, I knew that it was now or never. I had a little bit of reserves and I needed to make the jump. So it's really just a mindset of how do I make this happen? There's never going to be enough time. There's never going to be enough resources to do what you think you need to do in life, but you just become resourceful. Perfect. I think the military might be one of those organizations that is less likely to fire you for exploring your options. Although I don't know. I mean, how do they typically react when someone says I'm thinking about leaving? I mean, Oh, you're leaving the cult. You're leaving the cult at that point. Oh, it is really? Absolutely. A death knell to your career to let people know before you have all your ducks in a row that you're leaving. And I was actually really lucky. My boss, uh, Colonel Ryan, was was really supportive of me leaving. She recognized that my talents lay outside the Army. And while I was a really good uh, commander and, and junior grade officer, I wasn't quite uh, into the whole rigor of, of staff work and other things that they needed me to do at that point in the Army. And I'm still 
you know, learning ironically outside of the army how to become a much better organized person and staff officer with our friend Ari Mizell. But, you know, she was very supportive. But then I had a boss who was not at all supportive and really actually uh, ran into some some uh, rough uh, moments with him on my way out of the army. So it was a high stakes game getting out of the army, just telling someone that you want to leave. Some people are supportive, but many people are not because you're leaving the uh, the brotherhood or the um, the greatest profession on earth. And how could you do that? You know, and, and that yeah. was a, a very careful decision I had to make and, and prepare for. Huh, I never really thought about that, but it totally makes sense when you explain it that way. I mean, you know, you brought up as well that you always need to be networking in, in all areas of your life because you never know when you'll have that crossover moment. And it's interesting that the timing's really interesting because I got an email this morning from this guy who'd written in and he's like, I'm really interested in the art of charm, but I realize I'm working on myself in so many other areas. I don't have time to work on networking right now because I don't want to lose focus. And I wrote him an email back. I don't have time to convince everybody, obviously, but I wrote him an email back stating, listen, if you're not working on your people skills right now, you're going to look back after you're wrapping up working on whatever skills or projects you're working on now and go, oh, crap, I needed people skills to get this to the final level. And I've been neglecting that using the excuse that, oh, I'm I'm working on other stuff right now. You, on the other hand, and me, of course, I agree with you, always build your network in all areas of life. Would you talk to that point? Because I think a lot of guys who are in your former position in the military are like, I don't need this. I'm in the military. I'll network when I get out. I'll network. And entrepreneurs do this, too. I'll network as soon as my website's done. I'll network when we have a prototype. I'll start networking once, you know, all this legal stuff is all set. There's always some excuse to postpone the people skills because they're scary and they're nebulous in a lot of ways. But in the end, I think they're the most important part. And if you look at successful people, they're always putting their people skills in their network first. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people learn the hard way because they think I'll just do this later and then dot, 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 I'll build a network in some sort of short order that will then start yielding returns right away. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Jordan. And, and people who are in the military, and I'm glad you, you have a bit of a military audience because the military is the greatest job security in the world. That's the last person the country lays off when there's financial times. But then they just decided to cut 80,000 soldiers and everyone's scurrying for cover in the military and people are good officers are getting put out of the army. Good soldiers are not getting promoted and getting forced out of the army. So when you think you have a safe job, there's no such thing in this world, especially in the information age with the amount of creative destruction going on that anything's safe, including the military, including the police force, the firefighters, yeah, they're the last ones to get cut until they get cut. And if right. you haven't been working on your networking skills the whole time in one of those quote-unquote safe government jobs that no one's ever going to mess with you in, then you're really whistling to the graveyard, in my opinion. And in the military, I saw it coming, and that's not the reason I got out. I, I, I got out because I didn't want to you know, become a general. And, and if I'm not going for the top of something, I'm just not interested anymore. And I decided my passion just wasn't in what I was doing anymore. And I wanted to get out. But I saw a lot of people who were got in touch with me about a year or two later and said, man, at least you had a plan getting out and, and I've got nothing. And let me just give you some examples in the military where, quote unquote, you don't need to network. Well, that was the biggest load of shit. Well, yeah, the biggest <laughs> load of crap you could say, because yeah. when I was in the military, I wasn't particularly good at a lot of things. I was not organized. I wasn't good at being on time for meetings. I was, you know, really, I mean, in a lot of ways, I was an atypical officer for, you'd think of the type A straight-laced kind of person. But what I excelled at and what I always 
allowed myself to do. And, and more importantly, my executive officer, Matt McKee, and first sergeant Michael Livingston, they took care of everything for me so that I could just network. And when I was tagged with some mission as a troop commander to go to an airfield and guard an airfield for a week, which was the worst, it was killing my training. And we were deploying to Iraq next year. And I thought, well, you know what? When we go guard that airfield, I'm going to make it a training event. We're going to bring all of our weapons with us and just train like crazy. We were running around everywhere and doing these hikes and these brutal runs and these training events at an airfield that we were supposed to be guarding. And we did the guarding too, but there was a guy out there who noticed us and he's like, who are these maniac soldiers out in the middle of Texas? And he owned like a private airplane. He owned a MiG, a Russian MiG that he bought. And he had it out at this airfield that these soldiers showed up at. And I got to talking to him and he said, you know, Sam, I've just never seen anyone come out here and do this. I've seen a lot of units rotate out here and do this mission, but you know, none of them have done what you guys are doing right now. And actually, we weren't guarding an airfield. We're actually supposed to be out there supporting helicopter units training. I don't want to misspeak that. But anyway, we, we were doing a lot more than any other unit had done when they went out there. And he was impressed by that. And we got to talk and he said, well, Sam, how can I help you? I said, well, my first tour in Iraq, I noticed that the uh, insurgency was just like fighting the mafia, except they had bombs. And I said, you know what I would love to do is get involved with the Austin Police Department and work with them on crime fighting and and mapping out networks and intelligence operations, because, you know, that would be an awesome thing. And he actually called, he actually knew one of the lieutenants in the Austin Police Department said, hey, I got this army officer who wants to work with you guys. Of course he did. He has a friggin' fighter jet. He better know the cops. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he, he better know the cops to get him out of all his tickets and everything else. Yeah. But he, he got me in touch into the office of the chief of the Austin Police Department, who that's like a general in the Army. I had no business as a captain talking to And when you look at rank equivalent. But I didn't care. The, the police chief was like, this is awesome. We all support you guys. We wish we were serving over there with you. How can we help? So I, I ended up getting... I sent all of my lieutenants free of charge, like the Army just had to pay their transportation. They went through the Austin Police Department SWAT course. I sent lieutenants and soldiers down there for a week at a time to do uh, ride-alongs with their organized crime department chasing Mexican drug gangs through Central Texas. And they would go on raids with the police department, of course, just watch. They weren't allowed to do anything. And then this was where it got really funny. I got the police chief to agree to have his whole SWAT team train my, my soldiers for two days. I got a bus somehow. I don't know how we got the bus, but I got a bus and I was loading it up with meals and all my soldiers had their rucksacks and, and we were going to go down there and just train for two days. I found this National Guard armory where we get allowed to sleep on the floor because we really didn't have money for this and approval, but I just kind of figured out the resources to get it to happen. And my Colonel, uh, Colonel Dorme came up to me and said, Sam, what are you doing? Where are you going? I said, oh, sir, you know, the whole unit, we're going down to Austin for a few days. And he said, did I approve this? I said, yeah, I told you about it in the office a few weeks ago. And he said, yeah, I thought this was like a couple of you guys. I said, well, it's all of us. And don't worry. You know, his last words to me, he said, do not get arrested on 6th Street in Austin party with your soldiers. I said, of course, we're not going to do that. We went down there and trained for two days, shot a bunch of bullets on the police department's dollar and we went to an abandoned hotel and practiced using our breaching tools and bashing stuff in. And it was just an amazing training event. To this day, I think all my soldiers said that that was the best training event they ever did in the Army. And it all came out of just one networking thing. And, and the reason it happened was, one, I had an amazing support staff that did all the stuff. 
that I wasn't good at and, and as a commander let me use my greatest talent to its greatest extent, which was networking. And then two, just always being aware of opportunities because you never know when you're going to have the ability to do that. And I, and I carried those skills over to Iraq when I, when I went over there and was, was able to you know, use my networking skills and to much greater impact over there. All right, back to the show. Yeah, that's excellent. And I love the mapping of networks. Can we map out our personal relationships and look at how the police map out organized crime and things like that and map out our personal networks? Can we t can we take a page from from that book? It's it's funny you ask that because, you know, when you were talking to my mastermind group with Ari Mizell, you were saying how the first thing that you were doing was you would make everyone at your boot camp intensive write down their network. Right. Well, in Iraq, because there were so many tribal dynamics and people were married to each other's cousins and, you know, there were just all kinds of crazy relationships over there. We went to the police department and asked uh, the police departments, well, how do you deal with this? And, and they said, well, we use this mapping software and you can plug someone in and, and put their relationship. And it actually gives you this visual depiction of grossly disfigured and extended family trees and relationships between people, between different families. And what you started to, to notice as you saw these things is the interwoven uh, Charlotte's Web type connectedness of, of all the things that were going on. And we would look at these networks and we would see patterns. And I would love to, and I need to find a commercial version of the software we used to use. And I, I think you and I should probably look at that and, and put it out for your network. But it was an amazing exercise. And we had these like wall size charts on our uh, intelligence office in Iraq uh, in my troop headquarters where we look at these things and go over it. And it really forced us to systematize. I think what we all naturally do, but because it was such an intensive high stakes process, we, we actually map things out. But, you know, honestly, I haven't looked for that software and used it, but the rigorousness uh, with which we did that because our kind of our lives depended on it, I think has always stayed with me in terms of developing that muscle to, to be able to connect people in your head. And, and when I was in Iraq, I had a Iraqi cell phone full of numbers of people who were always calling and texting me. And I, I was always meeting with different people and had this great web in my head of the entire network that I was dealing with. And I think was just able to start to intuitively put it together. But it was nice to have it mapped out. Even in the digital age, I mean, over there, of course, there's no friend, the uh, Northern Alliance on LinkedIn and send the messages that way. You have to break bread with them. Do you recommend doing this in the digital age, even down here? Because it seems like, and of course, from my perspective, people always ask, how do we improve our digital network? And I'm like, spend shitloads of money on plane tickets and go to events, because that's the best way to do it. I mean, do you recommend that? Do you also recommend that strategy? Because you live abroad, you've got this huge network, but I mean, are you still putting value on meeting people face-to-face? -face? Do you still think it's better? Well, that's the funny thing, Jordan, is, and, and call it a survival tactic in Iraq. When I sat down with someone and had, you'd have chai, they'd bring in the, the tea and then you'd sit there and you wouldn't talk business for about five or 10 minutes. You'd talk about your family, where you're from. And, and then finally we, we'd get down to business. And it, it was a cultural thing, but it really taught me that when you sit down and I call it the break bread rule with someone, you really get a sense of who they are. And, and again, when your life is on the line and you have to trust some of these people that you may or may not get, a double cross by, 
you start to develop that sense. And I, I think the reason why women are so intuitive and so much better than this in men is because if you think about a woman throughout history, they've always been in a much more vulnerable situation where if they get this wrong, they might be raped or attacked or something like that, which men don't usually have to worry about as much as right. women. Yeah, the safety concern is done a lot with evolutionary psychology because guys will walk into a situation and go, that guy looks kind of tough, whatever. But women are like, I feel unsafe right now. And us guys were like, oh, that's ridiculous. But if she weren't with us. Or he's creepy. Yeah, he's creepy. And we're like, eh, whatever. Yeah, what that means is there's something about that guy that's making me feel nervous. And we talk about this on the show a lot. It has to do with either an incongruency in what the guy's doing or saying versus the nonverbal communication. Or it could easily be the uh, idea that he's nervous and she's mirroring him unconsciously and therefore feeling nervous and not knowing why, but knowing that he's the source. There's all kinds of reasons for that. But women do pick up on that because, yes, they're, uh, they're likely much more evolved to do so. Well, that's what I learned in Iraq is talking to so many people. When I was in Iraq, I actually developed a tribal engagement strategy because I'd seen I'd done it the first tour. I'd seen my colonel. I mean, really negotiate entire tribes into kind of accommodation with us. And when I went there the second tour, I trained them on shooting and all the things that I knew they needed to do. And then I just gave that to my lieutenants. I said, you guys go out and do the raids and secure the area. I'm going to take my little personal security detachment and I'm going to go do politics all day. And what I went and did was I would I met with people. And, and I actually very early in my tour, I got a, a letter from a guy who wanted to talk to me. And he was part of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was the forerunner of ISIL or Daesh. I'll call him Daesh because they hate that name. Is it? What does that mean? I know like French people use it and that's all I know. Yeah, Daesh is just, I think it just means something like filth or something in, in Arabic. It's just basically the discriminatory or slang curse word that they use to refer to him. And, and Daesh so I, that's what I call him. I don't call him ISIS, whatever the hell they want to be called. But this guy had been involved in the network that was the most dangerous one in Iraq. And he wrote me a letter through an intermediate and said, I, I'd like to sit down and talk to you. And I had to go through my boss and tell him that I had this opportunity. We just chased him down and, and very nearly caught him. We actually came really close. He was hiding in a hole under a cow in his hometown when we were looking for him. We couldn't find him. And I had this opportunity to sit down and talk to him. And I actually had the opportunity to talk to a, a number of the leaders in the insurgency because they had a lot of pressure that we were putting on them. We'd moved into their area and we were going out on raids every night. So we had this kind of you know leverage. And so I thought, you know what? I have leverage and I'm going to bring my snipers into the meeting so they get a good look at these guys. And I'll remind them at the end of the meeting, I can kill them from a mile away if we <laughs> ever see them. Talk about having options, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I, I've got some really funny stories about some of the meetings I had. And we actually ended up sitting down with people and did a number of discussions. And some of the discussions weren't very good, but some of them produced just groundbreaking intelligence for us to the point where we ended up killing in a raid one of the top guys that we were fighting against in northern Iraq. In fact, when he was killed, the Iraqi TV was streaming it across national TV. This guy had been killed in a fight. And it was just because I decided to trust my gut and go into some of these meetings with these guys in, in a pretty high-risk situation. But I realized that I had more options than they did and that I needed to build my network with some of these people and you know split the coalition that they had going, which was very weak at that point because of the pressure we were applying. 
So I just developed through a lot of this time a sense of people. And luckily, because I'm still sitting here today, it it worked out for me. But, you know, there were times I, I remember I got a cable from the CIA in Washington, D.C. saying, hey, this guy's going to wear a suicide vest in the meeting, so don't go. Well, it was late. It was two days after the meeting I got that cable. So it obviously didn't happen. But it was a pretty interesting time. And, you know, long story short, I ended up through all these negotiations creating a situation greatly aided by how awesome my soldiers were at chasing these guys down at night when I wasn't talking to them, where 178 of these guys came in and did a formal kind of surrender. They came in and basically said, look, we're going to lay down arms. We're going to fingerprint, get our eye prints done, and, and basically have a guarantor would come in and say, look, if this guy does anything or the rule was you had to come see us within 24 hours if we asked for you or we're going to go arrest the person who basically put up bail with their own right. freedom or sure. life. So what I realized when I did this was there's nothing like sitting down with someone and getting a sense of them. And, and when you do that in the digital world, I'm in the digital marketing industry and I love to just look at how long we spend behind our computers and People are Facebook friends and they talk all day in these different forums. And what struck me about the industry is how absolutely antisocial Facebook has made everyone because you don't actually have to do anything but watch people's news feeds. And we substitute that for being social. And, you know, the funniest thing is Facebook is the greatest barrier to social behavior and networking in the world, in my opinion. But it's a great efficient tool for keeping up with people to avoid having to call them and reach out to them. So one of the rules I made with contractors all over the world in Australia and the Philippines and Europe and these things when I left the army was, you know what? I don't really have anywhere I need to be right now. I don't have rent. I don't have a house that I own. So I'm just going to travel and work and meet all these people that I am working with or considering working with. And the funny thing that happened was, first of all, my employees in the Philippines had all kinds of friends who work in the digital outsourcing industry, and none of them had ever had a boss come visit them. So that right there was just crazy to them and mad loyalty that I gained with my team there. And every time I went there, their productivity would double because they knew that I cared and I went and visited them and I was vested in them. I know their kids. We've you know hung out together, done some team building trips together. But the other thing I noticed, even just with contractors, copywriters, designers, when I would go sit down and meet with some of these people, I would decide very quickly what I really thought of them. And, and some of them, the relationship ended pretty quickly after we we met. And other people that I never would have considered working with or was skeptical, once I met them, I just had this sense that, hey, this is someone I like, I want to do business with, I want to give them my money because I have choices on who I can spend my money with because I travel all over the world and know a lot of people. But this person deserves this opportunity and I trust them to do it right. So I like to say in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In the land of the virtual world, if you employ the break bread rule with anyone that you do business with and you actually use that, you're going to stand out from all your competition of people who are competing for these scarce, talented resources. But also you're just going to explode your productivity and your relationships in a time when everyone's kind of getting away from networking unless they're listening to your podcast. Of course. It's super interesting, the, the comparison, because one thing, people are like, oh, they're so far away. And I'm thinking, this guy's, Sam's over here worried that the guy might wear a suicide vest to the meeting, and you're going, eh, it's a $300 flight, that's a lot of money, you know? 
and it seems like such a, a petty concern, especially when you're going to spend tons of time, money, effort, possibly going to business with this person, hiring this person, and you can't go to an event or, or meet people face-to-face. And a lot of times, people don't think about, oh, it's they think it's the cost, or they rationalize that it's a cost. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of people are worried about the social contact, they're nervous about meeting new people, they don't want to have to put the practice in place, and they just rationalize, oh, we talk all the time on the internet. I've got pictures of him, I talk to this person online, we do everything we need to online. Well, Yeah, and and Jordan, that's a great point. I I live in Poland now, which is a really small, manageable country from a networking perspective. And I just went to Warsaw to meet with my Facebook ad managers, and we spent an entire day together going over things. And they said, you know, they were frustrated because they wanted me to explain everything that I wanted for this new launch campaign that we're doing. I said, look, let's meet in person and get it straight because we had to go over the big vision part of it. And they said, there's no way we could have done this over Skype. As long as we could have spent every night on Skype doing this, it just wasn't nearly as productive because of the the intangibles of body language and emphasis and interpersonal communication and, and the connection you make in person. It's just, it's irreplaceable. Absolutely. You know those weekends where you like go away in a corporate retreat or something and you're like, man, I feel like I've known these people for years, <laughs> even if they're new people. That's the whole point of that retreat in the first place. When you think, oh, well, I can just meet these other people over Skype. And it's like, hey, dummy, you know, this isn't really going to work. These aren't really good connections. You know, you look at the people you're spending FaceTime with. You can spend a lunch with somebody and be closer than somebody who's spoken with somebody else over Skype for five days five straight days or hours or emailed back and forth forever because it's just not, humans aren't evolved emotionally, I would theorize, hypothesize, to connect with people in one medium only. We need that face-to-face. We're not evolved to think, oh, well, I've been writing electronic letters to this person, so I feel close. You can rationalize those connections, but it's going to be imbalanced on both sides, and it's not going to be necessarily very lasting. Well, in Jordan, this is the classic principle of, you know, words are a very small percentage, maybe seven to 10% of it is the actual content. And then, right, there's that Moravian study that's always misquoted where it's like 93.7% of communication is nonverbal. And it's like, okay. But yeah, either way, more than half of communication, at least when we're talking about this type of communication, is nonverbal and has to be done face to face. That's what, that's basically what the study says. Yeah, and, and whatever the percentages are, think about how many emails or texts have you ever sent that got taken out of context. And then you had to pick up the phone to say, look, listen to me. Listen to the tone of my voice. That's what you're saying. This is what I really meant. Oh, okay, the misunderstanding. Or Well, and and look who they happen with. Somebody that you live with, your wife, you can send them a text, and they're like, what's your problem today? And you're like, what? This is yeah. the person that knows you best out of everyone in the world. So imagine that same communication being filtered by somebody who you've never spoken with other than email in your whole life and has never seen you. And I know sometimes when I write emails, people perceive me differently than how I actually am. Yeah, you're a real jerk on email, dude. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty blunt and straight to the point. And when you talk to me, it's, it's a little bit different, especially when you meet me in person. But yeah, my email communication is uh, completely different than how I get along with people interpersonally. And I think it's uh, something that, you know, we could all work on to make our email communication more congruent with who we are in person. But ultimately, you just don't want to rely on that to cement a relationship. You, you want to augment relationships with it and speed communications. But the core has to be that interpersonal meeting and connection. Great. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, Jordan. I, you know, first of all, 
thank you for what you're doing in terms of making this a movement in terms of teaching people systematically that you can improve your networking skills and your interpersonal skills. And I, I think I would just tell everyone I was not a born charmer as you know, you, mm. you've told your story too. This is something that I consciously started studying and working on. And yeah, I could look back and say there were a lot of things I did well in networking from as a small age, but I, I definitely gotten better at it when I consciously started studying it and applying it and, and understanding the psychology and, and studying body language and, and learning really is a process of practical application augmented by knowledge and then go ahead and, and revisit that application and then go back and iterate. If, if you're not always practicing and then studying the theory and then going back and practicing it, you're not advancing it the rate you could. And I think that's what you offer uh, in the art of charm. And it is so powerful in terms of interpersonal. And for me, there's no way I'd be where I am right now in the business world and especially the digital digital community. My old first mentor in the community, James Shremko, told me, he said, your greatest skill is networking and you need to leverage that as much as you can because, you know, that's what you do. You do well and you need to continue to develop that. And I think we can all do that and make that a strength. Anyone who says I'm not a people person you're just telling yourself a story because you know, you're afraid to roll your sleeves up and get dirty. Exactly. Thank you. Good. Sounds just as good coming from you. I appreciate it. It's refreshing. Sounds better coming from you. Thanks so much, man. This has been really solid, and I'm excited to see what the, the audience thinks about it. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jordan. And uh, you know, thanks for your community uh, giving you this platform to, I think, make your part of the world better by spreading your message. Thank you. All right, man. Always interesting to hear from folks who have created massive networks with hostile people, negotiated with hostile people, created these amazing relationships that have these great consequences or positive benefits. And then here we are going, oh, I don't know, that event's really far away, or I can't get to Art of Charm. I live two states away. And we've got guys who come in from China and Asia and Europe to do it. It's all a matter of how much you put into it, guys. It's, it goes to show. And the tactics that Sam has brought about here should hopefully help us and you achieve some greater success in your networking and relationship development. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show is a fanarchy. It's run by you. I need guest suggestions. You want to hear from guests. So email me if you know someone who's a good fit for the show and introduce me to the guest. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Sam on Twitter. We'll have that linked up in the show notes as well. Our live program details, of course, at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And if you're not subscribed to this show, then that needs to change. Go ahead and subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. That's the best way to get stuff delivered while you sleep. And of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available for free as well. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the AOC podcast. Tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 